Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today's discussion will focus on the impact of artificial intelligence, AI, and generative AI on cyber. To set the stage for the discussion, large language models such as ChatGPT can be used to write malicious code. At the same time, AI tools are increasingly being used to proactively detect and thwart cyber attacks. So therefore, we are talking about a tool, a platform that can be weaponized by the perpetrators. At the same time, this tool can be very helpful in proactively thwarting attacks. I have with me today Ian Patterson, CEO of Plurilock, who is an absolute expert in this area. And I will let Ian talk more about his very interesting background, but briefly about him. He is a 10-year data analytics entrepreneur who has a proven track record of commercializing data science solutions and landing multi-million dollar accounts. His company, Plurilock, provides state-of-the-art adaptive and risk-based authentication solutions. So Ian, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about uh, AI in the intersection, really, between AI and cybersecurity. Absolutely. Before we get into that discussion, uh, Ian, share with the listeners uh, some highlights of your professional journey. Well, I appreciate that uh, opportunity. So my background, I've been in the, the data and analytics space for the last uh, 10, probably actually closer to 15 years now. We should probably update that number. I uh, spent uh, a good number of years at an e-commerce analytics firm. We were doing uh, data analysis on over half a trillion dollars of e-commerce transaction data. So helping uh, e-commerce merchants analyze their markets, understand who their competitors were, what they should price their products at. There were really two sides to the business. We were we had a SaaS product that uh, po- folks were able to use themselves. And then I ran the enterprise division where we were doing largely the same type of analysis, uh, but just at a much larger scale. So rather than looking at what to price one product, we would be looking at how to price a quarter million product SKUs and and how to enter the brick markets, Brazil, Russia, India, China. So I was doing that on behalf of large enterprises. That company was was venture backed, was was ultimately acquired. I then went on to found and and bootstrap uh, my own company, Exapic, where we were we were really helping our clients manage, mine, and monetize the data assets that they had. Drawing from the experiences uh, uh, that I had in the e-commerce space, but but widening that to to other to other industries, um, Exapic was was also eventually acquired, um, and then Plurilock. Uh, I sometimes joke is we're we're 
functionally running the same operation, the, the same mathematical operation. We're, we're using data to inform business decisions. Only in this case, those business decisions are in the area of cybersecurity. Uh, and specifically, we have AI that allows us to identify people based on their unique movements, specifically how you type on the keyboard, how you move a mouse. Our AI models can identify who you are as a person in a matter of seconds. That technology was a, a spin out from university. We spent a, a couple of years in product development, helped to uh, package that in a in a product. Uh, that product was was purchased by uh, larger enterprises, both in the defense uh, space uh, as well as financial services and other critical critical infrastructure clients. Um, and then from there, when it it got time to scale the company, once we had that critical mass, we ultimately took uh, Pluralock public in in 2020. And since then, we've done four acquisitions. So, um, so it's been a a, a busy uh, few years, I will say, since since then. Uh, and I think it's starting to get even busier um, with the the threats and also the advantages that generative AI plays, both for the bad guys as well as the good guys. Uh, and so really looking forward to, to the conversation today. Fantastic. Thanks, Thanks for that succinct summary. Uh, you're a man of uh, many abilities and great accomplishments, and I wish you even greater success. So, uh, Ian, just to get things going, and I like to kind of go back to the fundamentals. As you and I know, artificial intelligence is a discipline. It's a branch of computer science that deals with the creation of intelligent agents, which are systems that can reason, learn, and act autonomously. Essentially, the field of AI has to do with the theory and methods to build machines that think and act like humans. So AI tools have many capabilities. And now, you know, thanks to chat GPT, generative AI is becoming a big deal. So help us understand your impressions or your understanding of the potential of this tool and its connection with cyber. So I think that the specific innovation that we're seeing between last year and this year is the step function change that uh, a new breed of AI tools, specifically large language models, are having in, in the market. And so if we were to, to abstract, what are we seeing today? We're seeing that large language models are able to appear uh, as if they are themselves intelligent. Now, I say that it's an appearance because when you actually look at the how those transformers work, the kind of the underlying uh, technology, really what those tools are doing is, is they're learning on a corpus of data. They're actually learning on successive sequences of data. In some cases, that data is raw data. In some cases, it's actually training data that other large language models are creating to train new large language models, uh, and then also going through a layer of, of human training as well. And so at the end of the day, what you're left with is a model that does a pretty good job at appearing like it is intelligent. Um, now, those models uh, appear like they are intelligent because they do a great job of predicting the next word in a sequence. So if you if you give it a prompt and you say, hey, uh, you know, write the opening paragraph to a Shakespearean play. Um, there's enough corpus of data that has that it has been trained on, where it it understands the context, and it it is able to accurately predict what is the first word, what is the second word, what is the third word in a way that that to us humans appears convincingly real. Now, 
how how that plays into cybersecurity is that there is a whole host of uh, attacks uh, in cybersecurity uh, called social engineering. Uh, obviously, a, a lot of us are familiar with phishing uh, attacks as well. Uh, there's also a, an SMS version of, of phishing attacks called smishing, uh, where it's it's SMS-based attacks. And so because there's existing attacks that use the fact that, that they are impersonating or they're, they're imitating something else that's real, having a, an AI system be able to also imitate something that is real is really just adding fuel to the fire here. And so so this is one of the chief dangers uh, of this new type of technology is that you can now author convincing text uh, at scale uh, and both the good guys and the bad guys can do it. So that's that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that what we're also seeing um, not only in terms of text uh, content that's being created, but also very accurate deep fake uh, voices, uh, very convincing deep fake videos, is you can also programmatically generate a lot of this content at scale uh, in a way that to a uh, distracted viewer or to a uh, a viewer that's not paying attention can look like uh, it is a real person or sound like it is a real person. Just recently, there was a, a 60 Minutes uh, interview where a uh, a security practitioner ran a, a, a test where they uh, they conducted a social engineering attack. So they they imitated a reporter and they called that reporter's producer and said, "Hey, I'm I'm going on a trip. I really need my passport number. Can you get it for me?" And the producer in this case actually told the attacker, hey, "Here is the passport number." Now it was all staged and it was it was done in a in a closed environment. But it just goes to show the power of this type of deep fake material, again, powered by the new advances in AI. So um, so I think that what we are seeing today is both an, uh, an increase in the volume of attacks, number one. I think we're also seeing an increase in the either the severity or the convincingness of some of these attacks. I, I call them multimodal attacks because you're, you're using not only the modality of text, but you can also use the modality of video or, or audio. And I think that we're going to have uh, to deal with these uh, with these types of attacks, with these problems for for many years to come. Absolutely. In fact, um, as you were sharing those examples, one case came to mind. I mentioned that in my book on cybersecurity readiness a couple of years ago. This happened in United Kingdom, where a senior executive of a company was called by his boss from Germany. And he was asked to transfer funds. He fell for it. He transferred the funds to realize that was an AI-enabled call, and his boss had was really not on the line. So, so this has been happening for a while. The, the perpetrators, the attackers, they have been using this technology to their benefit. At the same time, like you shared, there are lots of capabilities that the good guys can also leverage to protect themselves against the bad guys. Before we get into those details, sophisticated details, I think this is a good point to share with listeners a few tips of how do we protect ourselves when phishing attacks become even more sophisticated? When I receive a call from my daughter, let's say, and say, hey, dad, uh, I want to access this particular service. Can I have the password, please? Because in, in in our family, we say, well, let's not text passwords we can you know call and ask 
now I, I can't even sure if that's my daughter really. So is that where we are today? Well, I think you're you're hitting on a few things. So I think first, your example of the executive who wired money to somebody he shouldn't have, very, very common. That class of attacks are called business email compromise. Um, happens every day. Um, and in fact, one of the things that is uh, surprising to people is just how frequently those attacks occur. I was on a, um, uh, I was doing a, a closed, uh, a closed door uh, presentation for a number of of tech companies, and uh, specifically around uh, cyber threats facing scaling tech companies, particularly those who deal with regulated data. So whether it's financial data or, or health data. And at the beginning, I simply asked the question, who here has a story about a business losing money to attackers through some sort of impersonation? And almost everybody had a story, whether it was themselves, whether it was their company, whether it was another company, it was very, very common. Um, just recently, I, I had uh, I received a call from a general counsel of a, a largest co- company, you know, in the, in the thousands of employees in size. And uh, they said that their accounting team had, over a period of six weeks, had wired $200,000 every week. And it was only on the sixth week that somebody finally caught it and said, oh, well, actually, we've been wiring it to the wrong business. So these things happen a lot on a personal, that's that, those, that's more on the business side. On a personal side, very common for uh, attackers to leverage Facebook, get some information about somebody's family, and then they will call a elderly person and say, hey, it's your granddaughter, it's your grandson, it's your nephew. I've just been in a car crash. I really need $5,000. I actually had this this case in particular happen uh, just a couple of weeks ago where somebody called. Uh, it was an 82-year-old grandfather. He wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to help. Uh, so he walked down to his local bank, took out cash. Somebody personally came to pick up that cash. Um, and all the while, the the caregivers were saying, you should, you know, we're not sure about this. This seems a bit suspicious. But he said, no, you know, my nephew's been in a car crash and I need to help. So unfortunately, it it hits upon the people's desires to do the right thing. And that's that's why these these attacks are are so dangerous. But your question was a good one, which is how can we defend against these types of attacks? I think the first thing is education. Um, so it's education both for your family members uh, as well as for your 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 business employees to educate them on what are the capabilities the bad guys have today. So if you know that a bad guy can potentially imitate your voice, send you a convincing text message, make it look like that the call coming in is coming from from somebody else's phone, all of these things are possible. If you can educate people to say, listen, these things are possible. It's not just in movies. That's the first step. So it's education. The second step is after you've done that education, then how can you set up a process or a check, a control of some kind to verify that even if one of these calls comes in, you have some other mechanism of verifying the identity. So if you get like a phone call, for instance, from your daughter asking for the password, have the conversation ahead of time to say, if ever something happens, you need money, you need something from me. After that phone call, I am going to text you or or I'm going to send you an email or I'm going to use a different communication channel to verify that 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 is, in fact, legitimate. Um, The second thing that you can do is you can add some sort of contextual question. So you can simply say in that text message, just confirming this is a real request. And by the way, what did we have for dinner last night? And so that's something that an attacker is not going to know. It's not really a password in the sense that it's you know, something super secret, but it's something that it's a shared experience that you have had with that other person that's going to be very difficult 
for an attacker to know. And so if you can put those very basic, and again, these are not technology solutions, you're not going to spend money on this, but these are just basic processes you can put in place to just trust, but verify, verify that it is in fact, the other person who you think it is on the other side, and have a little bit more confidence that uh, that you can deal with these types of requests when they come in. Excellent advice. And, uh, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm shaking my head and I'm like, really, is that where we are, where I can't even trust that I'm speaking with my wife or my daughter that I have to ask her, hey, can you tell me where we were yesterday or what we what we ate the other night? But you are right. You know, we have to be extremely cautious at the, I don't like to use this word, but I, I'm going to use it. And that is we have to develop some sort of a security paranoia. And every time, whether we are looking at an email or writing an email or having a conversation, we have to be on the alert. Now, is that nice? No, but that's the new reality that we are living in. Will we falter? Absolutely. I've had a couple of uh, psychologists on my podcast, and uh, they told me that these uh, perpetrators they know they even have the timing right when they hit you. Like first thing in the morning, you're waking up, you're checking your emails, you're not at your alertest, and you're likely to just click on a link, which is what happened to my wife recently. She got fished, though in our family, I consider her to be most security paranoid. So we are in an interesting time where despite all the progress, we are becoming even more vulnerable as a society. Yes. We claim that we have smart tools, smart homes, smart appliances, but on the flip side of smartness are the extreme vulnerabilities that have cropped up. The attack surfaces keep expanding. So very interesting. You know, continuing this discussion, uh, Ian, share with us a little more of, let's say, maybe, you know, take the context of your company. What AI capabilities are you all using to provide a cybersecurity solution that is beneficial to your customers? Great question. So we've talked about what the bad guys can do. And by the way, I'll, I'll just add on uh, ransomware attackers also will, will use the time of day and day of week to their advantage. Very, very common. You know, you're not going to have a ransomware usually Monday at 10 a.m. when everybody's refreshed from the weekend. It's going to be Friday afternoon. It's going to be on Christmas Day. It's going to be the last time that you actually want to go do deal with those types of situations. So, I think what you're hitting upon is the fact that cybersecurity you have a you have an opposing opponent on the other side who it can be just as sneaky and just as crafty and just as resourceful as you can, and you have to deal with those those dynamics, right? It's it's un, it's not like a, a mine where it's you against the rock, but the rock isn't fighting back. You're actually, you're competing with somebody uh, on the other side. So, you know, I think that for for us, Pluralock is in a, a unique position because we've been leveraging AI uh, since before ChatGPT came out. Uh, we, we actually have deep expertise in the area of behavioral biometrics, which is the ability to recognize people from their behavior. And that's been part of our patented solution. We have We have half a dozen patents on this. So we're coming at this from the perspective of we're already using uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. We've actually been in market with this product for for a, for a good number of years, and we've been helping organizations leverage the power of this AI um, for a good number of years. So that's that's the first part. I think the second part is the other side of the increase in use of of large language models is that it's it's actually enabling good guys 
to be able to accelerate and and leverage the power of that automation as well. So we talked about how large language models can be used by the bad guys. The way that the good guys are using it is to help uh, as co-pilots, both for using for using that when you're doing when you're writing software code. So you can certainly use large language models to accelerate or um, help cut down on some of the minutia when you're writing uh, code. So that's one way. I think the second way, and we see this specifically around security, is there's uh, there's usually a large body of work that you need to do when you're in a large enterprise and you have a a security operations center, a SOC. It's very common for uh, for the most junior people to be on the front lines of that SOC, reviewing logs, trying to understand, or do these logs represent a threat? Are they benign? And in so doing, unfortunately, they're the least qualified because they're the most inexperienced. And so they don't have that corpus of experience to quickly ascertain, is this good? Is this bad? Do we need to raise the alarm or not? And so we're seeing a lot of uh, co-pilot usage in um, in SOCs to be able to do log analysis, to speed up, to be able to do more with less people or the same, do more with, with the same amount of people. And so that's that's also been a huge boon to productivity. So you know, I think uh, uh, it, it's a rising tide that's lifting all boats, both the the boats of the pirates and and the boats of the I don't know the navy. I, I suppose if you want to use that analogy, absolutely. In fact, uh, let's take these uh, generative AI models that are you know becoming very very popular are being used extensively, and you know just for the benefit of the listeners, generative AI is a type of artificial intelligence technology that can produce various types of content text, imagery, audio, and synthetic data. And if one wants to get a little bit technical, it's a subset of deep learning. And it processes both labeled and unlabeled data using supervised, unsupervised, and semi-supervised methods. There are examples out there of organizations using it for vulnerability scanning, threat hunting queries, improving supply chain security. But one example that got my attention was how this uh, innovation in AI is helping companies reduce the time to action during a cybersecurity incident where they use this particular tool to quickly find out what were the 10 most recent log-on events performed by this one particular email recipient who got hacked. And so I feel that we are at the precipice of having at our disposal some very powerful technologies which will help us do better against this perpetual war uh, with the cyber attackers. Your thoughts, Ian? I think building on the last comment, this is a, a an enabling tool that does not discriminate if you're a good guy or you're a bad guy. So I think that we're going to see an increase in the volume and sophistication of phishing multimodal across text and video and audio. I I certainly think that's going to occur and it's going to continue for the next couple of years. I also think, though, that the defensive side, the good guys, are also going to find ways of improving their their productivity. Cybersecurity has had a a massive uh, human capital shortage over the last couple of years. Two years ago, there was an estimated 1 million cyber jobs left unfilled. Last year, the estimate was 3.5 million jobs unfilled. 
Um, and so I think that that we've always had this need in cybersecurity to be able to increase productivity because there's not enough people to be able to do the work that's not needed to, to stay safe. So so AI in that case will help. It, it will be a, a productivity boon. You know, I don't think it's a replacement. The way that uh, I think about leveraging AI is you typically have a human do the first 10% and the last 10%, and AI is really good at doing the 80% in the middle. So it's not a replacement for the human, but it's an enabler for that human. It allows them to to do more with less and hopefully highlight the, the area that they need to focus on. So in your example, perfect one, right? Leverage some AI, surface the 10 most recent or the 10 most relevant log entries, and then let the human analyze that and understand what's happening. In theory, you could also have some AI maybe recommending suggestions of what do we think the cause was? What do we think the next steps would be? Um, and so prompting the the user um, to say, here are some areas, if you're stuck, here are some areas that you might want to go down. Again, this is not a replacement. This is really about how do we speed up the time to detection or the time to remediation for a specific type of cyber threat? I couldn't agree with you more. And thank you for emphasizing that we are not talking about humans getting replaced by these sophisticated tools, but they are essentially doing the heavy lifting. You still need the humans at the front and at the back to make important decisions. The one example that comes to mind, and I keep harping about it every time my advice is sought, and that is, I take the example of continuous monitoring. You have great tools to monitor, notify you of potential threats, vulnerabilities, but then it's up to the organization to process that information, that intelligence promptly and take appropriate action. And the action could very well be that it's okay, we know it's a threat, but we are not too worried about it. Well, log it. So this way, an organization has is maintaining a log of the threats received and how they were processed and what decisions were taken. So in the event of a breach, before the judge and the jury, the company can make a strong case that we have been doing our very best to process the intelligence. We made the best call that we could given the context then. Yes, we were proven wrong. But at that point in time, that made the most sense. I don't see too many companies having in place that process, which will instill in them the discipline of promptly acting on the intelligence that is generated by AI-driven tools. So I really liked what you said. And you also mentioned about the need for cybersecurity professionals. There are so many unfilled positions. In fact, an episode that I'll be releasing tomorrow speaks to what can you do to um, get more people attracted to this field, get more people involved. And I'd like to use this platform to let the audience know that don't think just because we have the advent of AI that humans don't have a role to play. Humans will continue to have a significant role to play, even if you are not on the tool side of things, even if you're not a developer or a power user, you can, you'll can you still have a significant role as we know you from the practice side, I from the research side, that effectively implementing a technology requires a lot of work. There are the cultural factors, 
process, the people. So there are many things that have to be addressed to effectively leverage technology. So there is more to it than just the tool. Anyhow, I'll switch it back to you, Ian. Your thoughts, your reactions. I think as we've seen, there is no panacea. There's no one tool that's going to solve everybody's problems. I'll I'll give you a, a statistic. We have a very prestigious group of both board of directors as well as uh, board of advisors with at Pluralock. Uh, and that includes people like the ex-director of the NSA who sits on our board as an independent director. Um, one of the other uh, individuals that we have as an advisor, he was formerly the chief information security officer for a large top five financial institution. And he has a statistic when when he was he, when he was a CISO there that at that top five bank, uh, he had over 200 cyber products from over 100 cyber vendors. And so you think about uh, you think about probably the marketing that all 200 of those cyber products had that, hey, we're going to stop the threats, we're going to keep you safe, we're going to keep you secure. But the reality is that cybersecurity is a team sport. And you really need a host of, of products and solutions working in sync and harmony with one another to adequately address the threats that are out there and and reduce the attack surface. So I think that that AI is certainly going to help. It's certainly going to, as we've talked about, be a productivity boost, uh, particularly for security analysts, but but likely there will be additional innovations and, and products that are out there that leverage this technology for reducing and mitigating risk. Um, but I think that it's those technologies deployed in a framework working with smart people to defend the enterprise that is actually going to solve the problem as opposed to depending on any one product to to solve every, to to solve everything. I'll even say just as a, a as a personal example, our company Pluralock with with our behavioral biometrics technology using uh, using machine learning and AI, we are focused exclusively on protecting employees. Specifically, we're protecting the identities of of internal employees. Uh, against account takeovers, password reuse, and other forms of insider threat, and so it's it's actually quite a narrow uh, a narrow niche that we've gone after. But what we felt was that there was a, a disproportionate amount of threats focused on this area around specifically identity threats, and there was an insufficient amount of solutions. There's there's a lot of great firewalls out there. There's a lot of network perimeters out there that didn't need as much innovation. What we felt was that. Uh, while MFA does a pretty good job of protecting you when somebody first connects to a session, what do you do after they have connected? How do you make sure that 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 account, that uh, that access isn't taken over by somebody, whether it's a, another internal employee or whether it's somebody externally? So, you know, in summation, AI is good. We're certainly going to see new innovations uh, leveraging that when it comes to cybersecurity but it's not going to be a replacement for the people that actually it takes to deploy and leverage those solutions. Absolutely. In fact, uh, as you were talking about insider threats, it brings to mind a recent episode I did with uh, a senior official in the Department of Defense who is their director of personal security research. He has written an article on insider threat, very well-written article. And one of his most uh, significant message is that despite the technologies out there, you still need the commitment of the individual employees to be willing to learn and apply the knowledge so that they are not a victim of different types of attacks. 
also that commitment is essential to mitigate the risks of insider threats. Insider threats is a huge problem, as you know very well. Another thing I wanted to further emphasize, I, you put it rather well. You said cybersecurity is a team sport. You essentially alluded to a holistic approach to cybersecurity governance, which is the centric message of my book based on several years of research where I've had the opportunity of analyzing qualitative data, speaking with numerous subject matter experts. And the framework that came out of that analysis essentially uh, highlights three things or three buckets, or if I may, three labels, commitment, preparedness, and discipline. These sound very obvious. They are almost like the things or the traits that are essential to succeed in anything. And that's precisely the point, that that's the kind of framework if you were to apply in the context of cybersecurity governance. And of course, there are more details. Each of these dimensions of this holistic framework has several success factors associated with it. Some of these success factors are technical in nature. We are talking about that in the context of AI. But several others are more governance-related, leadership-related, like how do you get top management actively engaged and actively involved? How do you get both business as well as the security and technology teams to jointly partner, to jointly own security initiatives as opposed to outsourcing it? How do you effectively empower the CISO so the CISO and the CISO function can be truly a force to reckon with and not just a scapegoat or you're just checking the box? So there are so much to cybersecurity governance. But it absolutely helps to have such technologies that we've been talking about to do some of the heavy lifting. This has been a fantastic conversation, Ian. I know we can we can go on forever or at least longer. But before we wrap things up here, I'd like to ask for your guidance and recommendations. There are so many tools out there, so many technologies out there. For an organization, when they're trying to make calls of what to buy, what to adopt, and how to effectively implement it, what guidance and recommendations would you have for them? For business owners in particular, and, and those who are responsible for security at, at larger enterprises, it's really about taking stock of what is the problem you're trying to solve. I think the, too often we we fall back on, well, we need a we need a product for each each quadrant of, of whatever Gartner recommends. And I think that the the more uh, the more useful way of thinking about it is is thinking in terms of some sort of standard or framework that could be ISO twenty seven thousand and one. It could be NIST eight hundred fifty three. You know, the great thing about standards is that there's so many to choose from. So it's about taking taking a framework uh, and then building against that while also mirroring and and matching up the risks specific to your enterprise relative to to that standard. So. Uh, you know, somebody in the uh, in the critical infrastructure space is going to have a very different risk profile than uh, somebody in the manufacturing space or or financial services. So, it, so a lot of it is is contextual. Um, but I think that the other uh, kind of the other layer to add on here is while going through that process and and thinking through the types of products and and services to add, 
having a, a good defense in-depth strategy where, yes, you might have some perimeter security, like some firewalls in place, but is there also, are, are there additional capabilities that you can layer in so that if that firewall is compromised or circumvented in some way, that there's something that you can fall back on? That's chiefly why uh, we at Pluralock had had developed our Pluralock AI. It was because even though MFA, multi-factor authentication, is pretty good at protecting that initial sign-on, we needed an extra step. We needed to be able to say, if that fails, if that's circumvented, if somebody has physical access to a device after somebody logged in with, with MFA, what then? What is the next layer of defense? Uh, and so that's really what, what we've tried to do with Pluralock AI. Um, certainly, there are there are other products and services you can do for other parts of the business, but it's really about having that defense and depth strategy. I think that that makes a difference between between somebody who has pretty good security versus somebody who has great security. Fantastic. Having a defense and depth strategy, taking a holistic approach and uh, being very mindful, being very judicious on how to leverage all these tools that are increasingly becoming available. I think those are some of my key takeaways from our discussion today. As always, I'd like my guests to uh, sign us off. So any final, final thoughts, Ian? Well, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. I hope that we can we can carry on the conversation uh, either on, on Twitter or on, on LinkedIn. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. It's, it's at Ian L. Patterson, Patterson with one T. We've also got for your viewers slash listeners, we do have a, a personal cybersecurity tips download. Um, and so we're, we're happy to, to share a link um, uh, maybe in, in, the, in the podcast description where people can get that. We'd love to connect on social media and looking forward to talking again. Hopefully we can, uh, we can reconnect in six to 12 months and, and uh, marvel how the world has changed as a result of the, the use of large language models. Because I, I suspect that we're in for a lot of change coming up. Fantastic. Let's end on that very optimistic note. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. A special thanks to Ian L. Patterson for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.